Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 28th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. I want to thank all of you who heard me yesterday and went on to um, uh, iTunes and left us uh, some wonderful reviews. Please, if you didn't do it yesterday, please do it today. It really helps us. Not only not only helps us feel good, even though there are some that say I talk too much, and that's kind of you know you're hurting my feelings. But fine, I talk too much. But uh, if you will happily do that, you can help us uh, improve our position in the iTunes store, get more people to subscribe, and give you bragging rights and having been here uh, first. I also want to tell everybody that we are working on the merch that I talked about uh, earlier in the week, and we should have um, a store opening up. Uh, on our website where we're going to be selling some t-shirts, sweatshirts, masks, onesies, bibs, uh, with uh, with some of your favorite commentary magazine podcast phrases. But please go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, uh, and I hope I have therefore satisfied the imprecations of, uh, as always, uh, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Okay, as we begin talking about what we're about to talk about, I want to I want to make very clear that none of us has ever made a nickel in the stock market, as far as I can tell. Maybe Noah's made a nickel in the stock market, but we haven't made a nickel. I, I actually, my wife had an E-Trade account. She had a little bit of money in it, and in 2001, I told her to buy Apple, and that stock has, in fact, gone up 892,000%, and, of course, it had a teeny bit of money in it, so uh, we've done really well, but it's the class. So that's my only stock market story. So I did say buy Apple in 2001. That's that's it, but otherwise, you don't want to listen to me about the market. You don't want to listen to any of us about the market. We are going to give no and provide no market advice here. We don't know what we're talking about in that realm. But we do, I think, understand some of the changes in American culture. So we wanted to talk about this phenomenon of the GameStop uh, stock run-up and what it says about American society and the behavior of uh, the intersection of the elites and ordinary people and and all of that – because uh, it is a very pregnant moment uh, for uh, in the divided culture between you know elites and ordinary people and social media and everybody else and the behavior of the top 0.1 percent and how that affects other people, um, this appears to be some kind of a signature moment that will probably pass pretty quickly, given that um, clearly the uh, the the managers of the market, not that the market is supposed to have managers, but the managers of the market have are, are now putting their 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 collective foot down and are sort of ending this unilaterally by ending trading in GameStop and uh, and forcing everybody who was buying the stock on this zero commission website, Robinhood, uh, to either get out of their positions or sell their positions, but they can't buy any more stock uh, in GameStop. And so basically, they've come in and are quashing this populist revolt (laughs) against the market. Um, But that doesn't mean that this hasn't opened up a whole question about whether or not 
the market can be played in a way by mass numbers of people that is going to have a an interesting effect on how our economy works. So uh, that's the best summary I can give because I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm just going to keep saying I don't know what I'm talking about so no one can say, look, you don't know what you're talking about. I acknowledge I don't know what I'm talking about. And yet you're still listening. Noah, please. Okay. So I don't know anything about investing either. Um, Having said that, I spent the better part of my day yesterday diving into this thing because it's a fascinating phenomenon. I am reasonably persuaded by the financial journalists that I've read that this is not a unique phenomenon. What happening here? What happened here is not new. There's not a lot that regulators can do about it. There's very little they should do about it. And the reaction that we've seen from online forums and from day trading institutions that has been very heavy handed is an overreaction. I'm persuaded by that. I am also persuaded by the arguments for what they did um, because of how unnerving the psychology that we're witnessing here is. Uh, so if you dive down into, and it doesn't, it's not really down because this is a very big movement here and it's not hard to find evidence of this on social media platforms, on Reddit, on Twitter, on TikTok, um, young people whose investment in this play here is not about money. They're not day traders. They're not interested in an ROI. Their ROI is chaos. Is ROI meaning return on investment. I'm saying that because I don't know anything about the stock market. And I'm going to assume that other people I, I, know nothing listener. about the stock market. So you can't use fancy terminology like ROI. The return on investment they're generating is, a, is that they're meeting out pain. Is that they're inflicting pain on people they think deserve to suffer. And the reaction that this has generated from the financial community only further validates and justifies a sense of persecution that animates this sentiment. Um, okay, and wait, I, wait, I believe, who, and I do who, believe wait, that there wait, is something. Wait, 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 wait. On whom are they inflicting the pain? Well, stated, it's hedge fund managers, it's money managers, it's people in the financial industry, it's these corporations that are designed to and function have, serve a serve a very valuable purpose in the market economy which serve to suss out weak companies companies that have assets that are under leveraged and to uh, find those companies and and basically force them out of business um, now that sounds kind of harsh it's basically the argument that was made against Mitt Romney in 2012 um, that the liquidation of these companies, hurts people, puts people out of business, destroys destroys things, it breaks things, and for no greater purpose than to accumulate capital. Um, that's a very populist impulse. It's also extraordinarily shallow and um, unno- unno- it reflects a lack of knowledge about how the market economy functions. Uh, detritus feeders, carrion feeders, are a very important part of every ecosystem. And that's what we're talking about here. Okay. Um, but of course, but for a populist okay, instance... Hold on, hold on. Because I don't know what I'm talking about. I just want to make this clear. And we know what we're talking about. So it's basically one hedge fund, right? It's a hedge oh, fund just, that has a Schmendrick name. It's Melvin Capital. It's like Melvin. Yeah, Elon Melvin Musk is, is like a Schmendrick name. Cares. So they bought up they bought up uh, GameStop and uh, and 
and apparently what what they what that meant was right that they 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 had options to sh- they were short selling and the idea was if you ran up the price uh the the short sellers were going to end up holding the bag because they had agreed to buy the stock at a price that it you know was no longer holding and so they either had to they would either either go out of business or they had to make good they had to buy the stock at the at the strike price and then swallow it once the stock collapsed. And so by running up the price and forcing this choice, this hedge fund and others had to then exercise their options and buy this, which then had the perverse effect of continuing the price rise since the stock was being purchased. Um, but, you know, if you want systematically to sort of like, you know, make a make a play against, you know, these horrible short sellers and hedge funds and all of this, Going after one hedge fund uh, that made one play against one company that seems to be of interest to people on Reddit and places like that because they bought their, you know, they bought their uh, game cartridges there five years ago before they just ordered them on Amazon. Um, you know, that doesn't really strike a huge blow. It is like the Luddites in the 19th century destroying, you know, one loom. It's like congratulations, you destroyed a loom. There are still twenty five thousand looms out there. You know, you did nothing but destroy something to make a point, but you're not actually having any 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 serious effect, right? That would be the argument against this, you know, uh, symbolic strike at the evil of short selling and the and the and the vulture capitalism and all of that, right? But Abe, you see something much more alarming and pernicious here. Yeah, so I, I do think it does strike a blow um, against um, the stock market itself and uh, whatever sense of um, security uh, uh, there was um, to it. Um, it's really, it's another expression of the um, undermining of institutions, of the distrust of institutions, and of, of, of large groups finding weaknesses um, in these institutions, exploiting them. Um, exposing them and um, sort of showing it's not just the, the, the destruction that Noah describes. It's also this um, way of sort of resting some power and, and mattering and, and, and having an effect on these, on these uh, systems and, and large um, uh, uh, institutions. You know, it's kind of like this, this whole thing is sort of like the dark side of um, flash mobs, which, which started to happen. I don't know. 10 or so years ago where, where you could organize with strangers uh, in say cities to have these big sort of surreal, spontaneous sort of production performances in malls and subways and wherever else. There's a very, um, uh, there's an unprecedented, I think, ability to organize in mobs for all sorts of things these days. Um, And that I think is what makes this feel whether or not it is uh, a, a big blow against vulture uh, capitalists or not, that's what makes this feel dangerous um, and uh, threatening and, and serious. Well, there's, it's actually the flash mob is a perfect way of thinking about um, all the unforeseen dangers that a lot of the people who used to boast about the power, the, the wonderful positive power of social media and the internet used to say, these were the people who loved flash mobs. And, and now they're seeing what, uh, you know, the more uh, 
conservative minded people who've always been suspicious of the crowds and the excesses of democracy were saying long before this. And, and a good example is I was thinking of just a week ago when Antifa in, in the Pacific Northwest was out on the streets again and had a banner that one of the things that said is we are ungovernable. This was the idea, like you cannot govern us. And there are enough, there's, there's enough people who can gather around that slogan. As you say, strangers can come together and suddenly they're all ungovernable together. So it's not just some random guy in a basement. It's lots of people all over the world in this case or in, in the country. And I will say that it's, it's led to this. We are in this weird moment of trying to understand what social media, and these other technologies have done to our institutions, because you can see it in the I was reading Farhad Manju, who's I kind of hate read him about technology because I think he's terrible. But he has a column in The New York Times today that said it was saying, you know, it's really great now that Trump is off Twitter. And I was suspicious about bans, but now I'm kind of embracing them because it's just so much better. But one of the things he said that struck me is. This was never what Twitter was supposed to be. What Trump did with Twitter was never what the the platform was meant to be. On the contrary, that's it. he was the logical conclusion of this platform, and I think we are seeing that in a broader social sense. It encourages uh, this kind of populist response. I'll tell you why this. I have such a visual reaction to this. It's it's it is kind of an assault on a first principle here. Insofar as I don't care about Robinhood trading or what have you, and this is such a, a minor part of the market that it's not going to have a profound effect on the market and the stability of the economy. And that's, there's a real overreaction to this sort of thing. The psychology at work here is so profoundly anti-conservative insofar as it is an assault on an institution just to see what happens, just to break it. And everything is fragile. Everything can be destroyed. And it doesn't take many people to do it. I mean, if we haven't figured that out over the last month, I don't know what kind of lessons we should draw from, from events. Um, and to see all these people invested in destruction for its own sake, willing to put put money on the table just to see it happen is really disturbing. Well, you know, the funny part about this is that uh, the, the, the theory of, you know, people who are worshipers at the altar of the free market is that um, – uh, there are no rules that a free market actually has no that that something like this uh, you 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 can't step out and say oh this is terrible because the market permitted it it happened and therefore it exposed uh, a mechanism that has yet has not been used before which is essentially like the generation of a flash mob as a as a counter principle against a short sell against uh, or what they call, they have there's some term, I can't remember what I'm talking about here, but like a, a, a rush to short sell. And then there was a kind of counter movement. Um, so this has happened and okay. So that's how markets work. Somebody finds a new instrument. Uh, you know, uh, that's what that's new instruments are how people make new kinds of fortunes. If everybody, thought of doing that, then it, it would, everybody would do it, right? That's Now, the question is, where we go from here, not this kind of one-off uh, flash mob that, uh, that, 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 that screws around uh, in a uh, hedge fund short position in GameStop. Um, and this is where it gets interesting, because the question is, will people who now know that this can be done harness it uh, by uh, as sort of con artists convincing people to make one of these plays just to see the world burn while they have set themselves up to take advantage 
of the world burning and then set the mob on something. And this is now a new technique Um, in a funny way. That's what hedging itself is or what short selling is. It is the, it is the uh, understanding that uh, weak companies as well as strong companies, uh, companies that are making less and less of a profit as opposed to companies that are making more and more of a profit that put themselves on the open market that, you know, went into stock selling and raised money that way. Um, that even their, their weak positions are are fodder for money making, just as their strong positions are. But there's, yeah, I mean, in a weird way, the the, the fact that this was done by human beings should be there's there's one sense in which it's mildly reassuring, and another in which it's a little it's even more alarming. So remember the flash crash in in 2010, right. where algorithmic manipulation of the markets that were that were being used by uh, traders uh, led to this like kind of disastrous half an hour where everything went haywire. That did what what it was, was a signal to those in charge that there were certain new breaks that needed to be imposed on the way trading happened. And they did that. And and that problem was largely resolved. Uh, But that was a that was, in a sense, kind of a mechanical breakdown. And this is a human nature problem. So it's going to be harder to solve. But it is an interesting I just was thinking back to that because we're talking about flash mobs and stuff. There, There are a lot of weird things that happen in these markets. But to the the ability to direct to direct it, and as you say, John, with potentially nefarious motives, that's that's more disturbing in some ways. Right. So then you have this, you have Robinhood, this zero commission trading platform, announcing that no one's allowed to trade in GameStop anymore. And what I saw this morning uh, in social media and elsewhere was a kind of outrage that was being expressed that Robinhood had, you know, was doing this. It's like, well, really? Well, no one ever stops hedge funds from doing what they, they're protected. Why, why aren't we allowed to do this? And it's this kind of bizarre American libertarianism, which is that which I did before people realized that it might be really dangerous. Um, how dare anybody say that I can't do it? Um, and in fact, markets re- regulate markets. Then can regulate themselves. Robinhood is not a is not a you know it's not the First Amendment. Robinhood's a private platform. It can say you, you can't trade in this stock anymore. No one's you know you know you don't have the right to trade on Robinhood. Um, and uh, but Robinhood can't long exist if if uh, I, I mean I don't know how it works or how anyone makes money from it or whatever, but. Um, it can't long exist if the idea is that every trade is conditional on Robinhood deciding, you know what, this went too far, um, yeah, because then you can't use it. It's not going to be something that is going to provide you with any degree of safety. I was struck by the fact, thinking this through, that um, uh, markets have gatekeepers for a reason. It, we don't. It's not the total libertarian, laissez-faire market. Uh, no one on 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 exchanges uh, where actual you know before the sort of the creation of the electronic stock market, if you wanted to trade a share of stock, you had to go through an intermediary. Brokers, stockbrokers, were licensed people who had the right to go down on the floor of a stock exchange and sell a share of stock. You couldn't do it yourself. You didn't have that power. Uh, and then, you know, it made perfect sense. Why did these people, why were these the gatekeepers? And 
you know, maybe people are playing games where they let their clients buy, their bigger clients buy stock before everybody else and take advantage of a five-minute gap to make more money than you can make. Charles Schwab lowered the commissions to very low. You know, people started then having this war, lowering stock market, stock sale commissions till we now have Robinhood charging nothing. And, uh, and, and, but the, the, those, the theory of the stock market broker, the stock broker was there had to be somebody between the mob and the market. Because otherwise it would be chaos. You had to organize it so that there were these people who could make these trades on behalf of other people because otherwise it would just be 10,000 people screaming their lungs out at each other and no, there could be no order. And what we're seeing here is the consequence of a breakdown of that system. Now, maybe it's fair that the system broke down because, as I say, because why were these people getting these commissions in the first place? Uh, why, you know, who who are they? Why, you know, just because they got a license from from the state, they were then allowed to sort of take five cents off every dollar that you traded. Um, I don't know how this works, as I say. I'm just saying that it's an interesting thing because the gatekeepers drop and that's very democratizing and it seems empowering. And then, of course, there are trade-offs. When there are no gates and there are no gatekeepers, when somebody says, hey, we can just storm this storm this place, you can storm the place. When you remove uh, guards at subway stations in New York City, when you remove like people in boxes watching, you know, watching people at the turnstiles, anyone can jump the turnstile. I mean that, you know, so if, 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 if you live in a world in which suddenly everybody is jumping turnstiles, then you've got a problem of turnstile jumping uh, because but that's, you tried to, yeah, go that's ahead. the thing. I mean, the, the gates are are coming down at the very time that it's the ability to facilitate um, a, a mob to 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 pull together a mob has never been this easy, this effortless, right. and this and this right. this democratized. Right. I mean, and by the way, I, I mean, we have yeah. seen that sort of you know, there's that you know, it's like there's also these videos that just when you it just reminded me of when you talked about the you know jumping the turnstiles. Like, you, would you ever see like when these like like a bunch of kids decide all at once to go into a store and just loot it and destroy it and overwhelm everything and take whatever they can? It's 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 like that, but it's some there's some adults involved now, right? Well, so it's an interesting point because if we have this kind of the the world of the of the alternate realities, right? The Trump, the, the 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 Trump voter who thinks that Trump won and Biden either stole the election or believed up until 12 p.m. on January 20th that Trump was going to remain president. I never really understood how they knew that, but um, there were apparently millions upon millions of Americans who believed that Trump would remain president despite the Constitution saying that the presidency would change after the certification of the electors. Um, that you know, you have this uh, situation in which people can are 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 now empowered to believe anything uh, that they want to believe uh, because the information is basically pushed right to their faces. Uh, not that they not that they didn't want to believe it in in previous times, but um, but this uh, the capacity to to believe in the alternate reality is made much easier by social media. And that is the revolution that we're living through. Well, and it's, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about uh, the ways in which we, we are uh, likely to see the 
Democratic Party and the left in general continue to use Trump as as a, a counterpoint, you know, something they can continue to argue against because it was very effective for them to do that for four years. But there's something on the right that I've been seeing, you know, my my Trumpier friends who send me their favorite memes the, the, the shift in tone is now, you, I got one the other day that showed Trump in black and white, like, you know, looking earnestly in the, in the picture at, right at the viewer. And it says, you know, you think that they, you think they were coming after me, but that's only because I was standing in their way. They're really coming after you. So there's a sense on the right that like, you could easily see Trump, he's no longer the figure and party leader that he, that some people want him to be, but this idea of, of uh, how they feel, how, how his voters felt, that was that feeling existed before Trump, and it will continue to be nurtured after Trump, largely online, by people who do feel like the system is out to get them. And it is a strange mirror image of the progressive left that thinks of, you know, the systematic racist is out to get them. I mean, it's a strange, it's a real funhouse mirror effect, I think, and the horseshoe theory and all this that we talk about, but we shouldn't it should concern us that idea that you know we can we all have to gather together in these democratic you know hyper democratic forums because the system itself doesn't work for us well it's also that um the system uh the system is put under stress and it turns out as i think noel was alluding to and as abe says about you know if if, a, if if 25 people decide to go into a store where there are five employees and 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 and, and wreck the place they can do it. They could always do it. They can always do it in the future. That it doesn't happen constantly uh, is the result of millennia of civilization, of civilization you know, uh, of millennia of training. Um, and and uh, when that training breaks down, as it did in the summer, for example, as it does at times of, 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 of rioting and stress and, and all of that, blackouts, things like that, um, you see how fragile the system is, and you then can say to yourself, "Well, why? Why doesn't this happen more often? Why? Why aren't? Why? Why isn't a stock price run up to three hundred dollars from three dollars? Um, if it can be done, it will be done. And the reason is, I guess, that um, uh, the opportunity cost is too high. One of the things we've done to ourselves—this goes back to my theory of everything—but one of the things we've done to ourselves over the last year <laughs> is put ourselves in a profoundly isolated state where our primary source of human interaction is on these platforms that reward the most base elements of human nature. And so we've got a lot of people who are steeping themselves in some really unhealthy psychological impulses and now are acting on them in part because that's their only environment. And they're extremely bored. They're so terribly bored. Yeah. Everything is boring. So let's go break some stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, as we express our dismay and concern about these sorts of habits and behaviors, that we should discuss uh, ExpressVPN. Um, because ExpressVPN is a way to do something about the rise of high tech uh, and its ability to dominate your life. Look, your ISP, your internet service provider, you probably really didn't have a choice on who it was going to be. It's whoever's there. They have monopoly power, and they take advantage of you. Uh, they log your internet activity. They sell that data to other big tech companies or advertisers. 
and God knows what else can happen with it. So to prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all my devices with ExpressVPN. Simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP cannot see any of your activity. This is so important because as we're talking about right here, so much of the lives that you live and that everybody else is living uh, are on the internet. And every site you visit, video you watch, message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who then sell your information for profit. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. Stop handing over your personal data, ISPs, and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself. With the VPN I trust to keep me private online, visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to earn more. Hey, guys. Uh, John Kerry, uh, le- uh, most recently Secretary of State, but of course the guy who ended destroy- ended up uh, destroying his very real op- uh, opportunity to become President of the United States as the nominee of the Democratic Party by saying, uh, exposing things like I I, I voted uh, for the uh, I voted for the eighty seven billion before I voted against it, or I voted against the eighty seven before I voted for it. Uh, I had another uh, glorious uh, and revelatory moment yesterday uh, being introduced as the climate change czar at the White House uh, in 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 his uh, first public appearance in that role, uh, uh, announcing that uh, people who were concerned about losing their jobs in the uh, energy sector, uh, in the you know oil and oil exploration and fracking or whatever sector, um, what could they do? Well, you know, they can make the solar panels now. You know, let them eat cake. You know, you've, you've done this thing for 30 years and your father did it before you. You know what? A screwdriver is a screwdriver. Right. So wait, can I just, I got to jump in here. Yeah. Because as the self-appointed Zarina of the commentary podcast, him even being called a czar raises the hackles on my skin. But the people who say that kind of thing, and most specifically, wealthy elites like John Kerry have obviously never done an honest day's work with their hands ever in their whole lives. And and, and the the fact that they can't hear that, if you've ever actually had a job that requires physical labor, you listen to that, and that requires skilled labor. Like these are skills that do not translate. You don't just unplug a blue collar worker in one factory and plug them into another one. That's not how it works. It requires training. And even the people who have steady jobs in these industries are constantly retraining because the technology becomes more sophisticated, the machines change. It's just, it boggles my mind that this guy has czar in his in his title when he has, you know, truly the most basic elitist worldview. Well, actually, <clears throat> it's perfect because uh, this is exactly what the industrialization of czarist Russia was was like. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and, 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 and that approach to repurposing uh, peasant workers was disastrous, that very yeah. approach. Right. Um, uh, this follows uh, Transportation Secretary-designate, or I, maybe he's been voted in yet, I don't know, Pete, uh, Pete Buttigieg, saying uh, last week um, uh, they can all get uh, new jobs now. Um, look, we're, we're very eager to see these workers continue to be employed in good-paying union jobs, even if they might be different ones. Right. Now, look, let, let's... 
here's the thing, which is if you believe that we are in an existential crisis in relation to the climate, if you believe that uh, these uh, transformational changes have to be made and quickly in order to save the planet, that does not mean that you cannot express sympathy, concern, empathy, and an understanding that the changes that are going to have to be made, speaking of Luddism and all this, are violations and disruptions in the lives of millions of people. And uh, the inability of Democrats to understand this is a fascinating long-term issue in terms of their tone deafness at dealing with the very voters who are going to deny them the permanent majority they think they deserve. This dates back to Barack Obama famously attempting to uh, explain why it was in 2008 the people that we would then come to know as the Trump voters, what their hesitancy was in embracing you know, the liberal technocratic elite that he recognized. And of course, he said, these people, you know, they're very backward and they're clinging to their guns and their religion because the world is changing so much. He was saying that, believing that he was expressing a sympathetic perspective on them. He didn't know that what he was doing was saying, you know, uh, Clem is a bigoted, you know, psychotic uh, who wants to, you know, uh, shoot people like the people but, in deliverance. He thought he was being nice. Well, and let me, I just would interrupt to say that's actually a weird service that the systemic racist and white supremacist argument now plays for the political left, which is they don't have to pretend they have to be sympathetic anymore. They can just say, if you don't embrace the program, it's because of systemic racism or white supremacy. They say that AOC just gave an interview yesterday or a, one of her Instagram live streams where she said that she's like, they all support white supremacy. That's why they're not on board with all the things we want to do. This is why the Green New Deal was the truest expression of the progressive modern ethos. If you read the Green New Deal or its supporting documents, environmental issues are almost tertiary. Like they're, they're in there. It's part of it. But the Green New Deal includes stuff like free education and universalized health care, health insurance and, um, you know, all these other associated things, uh, a minimum income, for example, all these associated things, because the idea here is to destroy the uh, sector of the society, the sector of the economy that pr- produces fossil fuels and all the associated sectors that benefit from the use of fossil fuels. So you're going to displace millions and millions of people. But how, so what do you do then? You have to retrain them and educate, re-educate them in whatever jobs you create from scratch. You have to provide some sort of a safety net for them because they're not probably going to get jobs immediately. So they need a minimum income and they need health insurance. It is the redefinition of all of society by fiat. As you said, Christine, we're talking about people who have trained their whole lives for this. This is their choice. This is their career. And they're being treated like interchangeable cogs. And a lot of people on social media are saying, you know, this is, you know, just, this is the new learn to code. It's not. As 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 a frustrating and and, uh, and rude as that is, it's an expression. As, you mean of as 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 learn to code for jo- journalists. Journalists who lost their jobs a couple of years ago. There was this trend, a really kind of callous trend, where journalists would lose, lose their jobs, and conservative media critics would go out and say, "You know, learn to code." Sort of an expression of their own um, distaste for the the hoi polloi who don't work in the information economy. Um, but what that expression was rooted in is the idea that you need to develop another marketable skill that you can apply in the, in the market economy. This is not that this is, we're going to create 
a new economy from scratch, independent of market signals, independent of demand, and you're just going to fit within that economy and you're going to make some money and it's going to be, you know, you're going to be okay. You're not going to be fulfilled, but this is what you have to do. This is as Soviet as it gets. Look, we have 40 years of history in the idea of the incepted uh, market or the incepted product. We have uh, super fun cleaning we have uh, an, in the energy sector constant solyndra, uh, the uh, fuel, the you know the battery fuel cell, um, all of these things that are basically uh, brought into existence and paid for by large government interventions, uh, subsidies, uh, tax breaks, and actual you know actual cash payments by say the state of California. Um, and with the exception of Tesla, as far as we can tell, which is in part a stock market bubble, none of these has ever worked. They don't work. They don't employ enough people because, as Noah says, they, they, are, they, are, they are summoned from above. It's like building Brasilia. You can build Brasilia, but no one is going to go live there. Just because you build it doesn't mean that it has the network of rich social associations that will mean that a million people are going to like uproot themselves and go live in this antiseptic new thing that the government decided to, you know, decided to visit like a spaceship, uh, you know, on a mountaintop. And, and that is the great, uh, liberal hubris. In 2004, Thomas Frank wrote a famous book called What's the Matter with Kansas, in which he said, I don't understand my home state. Like, they keep voting for all these conservatives who who don't want to, who are, who don't support giving them things and providing them with benefits and throwing money at them. This doesn't make sense. What, why, what is the matter with Kansas? Well, the matter with Kansas is that Kansas understands that those people hate them. That's why. It's they think they're weak and what they do is useless and pointless and who they are is meaningless and the things they believe are wrong and they are at best being treated with contempt and at worst they are openly hated, which is what AOC is saying when she says anybody who disagrees with me uh, is a white supremacist. It's like, you know what? I have two choices there. Either, uh, and I and I don't agree with you, either I say, yeah, you know what? I'm a white supremacist. I hate all, all minority. You, you have pushed me into this. Fine. I'm now going to, you want me to think this way? Let me take it as far as I can go. And the other is to say, I am going to do everything I can to make sure that somebody like you never gets more power than you have right now. There, there's also there's another part of that which uh, I thought about when you were describing that worldview and the and particularly the what's the matter with Kansas uh, book which I haven't thought of in a while. Um, there it wasn't just that they they don't like these people and don't value the same thing these people value. They also expect and assume that everyone will turn to an expert class to answer problems for which conservatives believe you don't need an expert to solve them, right? So you turn to your family and your church and your community and your network of social relations, those rich, you know, wonderful at ground level things that we should all hope to nurture and try to nurture. 
um, the technocratic elite, uh, and and this includes sort of extreme, you know, free market capitalists too. They either want to commodify it, or they want to have the expert class come up with standards that everyone should agree to. And that that clash has been going on for a very long time, as we know. But the part of the reason that I think the online culture has, thrives now is that there's been a, a corrosive effect of living in a society where the technocratic elite who control the levers of power and the levers of culture are constantly telling you that what you want to do with your life is wrong because the experts know better. Why wouldn't you turn to a bunch of fellow people who feel confused and angry and, as Noah said, isolated and start talking about ways to, to, to make change, right? Um, because you don't want to accept what the technocratic elite tells you. You have a sense that's wrong. What's your alternative? And Trump was an answer for many people to that question, at least temporarily. And I mean, the white supremacy thing is just so profoundly craven at this point that you would expect that there would be a a disinvestment on the part of, you know, institutions and stakeholders from making these kind of claims like they're now being applied by the school, the teachers unions who are trying to keep the schools closed saying anybody like two examples yesterday, literally, of teachers unions saying, in Washington and Chicago, I believe that it's it's a function of white supremacy to want these schools open, even though minority children are we now know through studies the most harmed by the having these schools closed. It's you know it's just a it's the shallowest form of emotional manipulation that everybody should be able to resist at this point. I mean, look, I don't know how to fit this in precisely, but I really did want to mention it that you know we know the San Francisco school district has now announced that um, 44 schools are going to have to be renamed in order to deal with uh, the issue of white supremacy. And uh, one of those schools is named after Abraham Lincoln. So are we now to allow the expert political class uh, that runs uh, the city of San Francisco to declare Abraham Lincoln, the man who freed the slaves, as 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 an un, as a person who uh, about you know the greatest of all Americans is somebody who uh, because I don't know he once said that you know uh, Liberia was a good idea or something like that he cannot have a school named after him um, aside from being a hundred or two hundred million dollar gift to the Republican Party's uh, political hopes in 2022, easily the most valuable thing that has now been done by Democrats to help Republicans in the next election cycle. Uh, d- can you imagine how many ads are going to be made about about the Abraham Lincoln School? Well, and that they rename the school, but they can't open, reopen it. Like that's actually oh, the further exactly. they, they won't better. open their schools in exactly. San Francisco, but yeah. they'll take no. Nick Lincoln's name off. Right, right, right. But, well, what else they got yeah. to do? But but what I what I but again I go to this thing which is, uh, I these people want to express in their when they are unguarded or or in friendly quarters or think that they are being you know or 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 think they're they're in a position to say good things that will help them. They express condescension and contempt for the very people whose their policies are having direct impact on. And this goes back to the day trading stuff, that condescension and that fear of the the general public produces in them a sense of persecution that is not entirely unjustified, that also drives them crazy. So we have 
two coalitions now that are seesawing between, you know, assuming the levers of power, both of which right. are insane. But and by insanity the way, feeds off the other side's insanity. Let's talk about the two faces of the technocratic elite that Christine is talking about here. Uh, in the pandemic and the response to the pandemic, because we have one that is like the miracle of the technocratic elite and the other that is the horror of the technocratic elite. So the miracle is, you say, we need a vaccine faster than we c- we've ever had a vaccine before. And by the middle of next month, uh, there are going to be four different vaccines, four different modalities, producing hundreds of millions of doses that are going to get us out of this pandemic by June or July. Uh, from a standing start in, you know, in a, that is science as magic. That is, you know, everything that we want from living in an advanced society that has done this incredible good. And then we have the other form of the technocratic elite, which is, we don't know, really, you've empowered up. We don't know how many doses are out there. We don't know. The CDC says that there's this and New York State says there's that. Nobody knows whether the syringes are the right syringes. They don't know, people don't know how to make sure that, uh, you know, the, the virus is distributed, the, the vaccine is distributed equitably. And we ha- are basically are going to lose six weeks to two months in this process because that, despite having nine months to organize themselves, the technocratic elite represented by the Biden administration uh, didn't know its ass from its elbow when it actually came to it to came to deploying, administering, and presenting and providing this vaccine to 330 million Americans. Well, and worse, th- th- there are a lot of these moments in in uh, certainly in the sort of critical race theory realm where they can talk a big game, but they never have to. It never actually comes down to real world consequences, like life and death consequences. It's starting to in medicine and actually in public health now. This was this part of the reason they're panicking is that they want to all the principles they've been spouting all this time about equity and you know particularly making sure that certain races get the vaccine ahead of others, et cetera, et cetera. As they try to implement them, they run up against the real world fact that their own coalition, look, I live in DC, it's a very liberal city. Liberal white old people in DC are being pushed to the back of the line so that, you know, people with comorbidities who are younger in, in zip codes that are largely minority in the city get the vaccine first. That's wrong from a public health perspective, but it's, it, it allows their worldview to continue to, to stay on track with regard to their theories about race. Speaking of technocratic elite failures, um, breaking this morning, is news out of New York State. Attorney General Letitia James is accusing Governor Cuomo and his administration of undercounting deaths in nursing homes to the to the possible rate of 50%, up to and including thousands and thousands of deaths. Now, we've been getting a little bit of pushback, I think, from some well-meaning people in the commentary community who have said, you know, yeah, New York State really blew it in the beginning, but they're doing the vaccination all right. They're getting shots into arms. Maybe they lost a few vials, sure. But, you know, look at the numbers. The numbers are all right. Anybody who says a good word about Andrew Cuomo can go screw. <laughs> I uh, That's kind of amazing. Uh, 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 Tish James is, uh, is playing with fire there. You don't go to war with Andrew Cuomo so easily. I, she better have the goods here. Because I was going to say she must have the numbers to, on her side. Yeah. He's going to destroy her six ways from Sunday, and uh, nobody can can do it. Uh, well, nobody know, can do it better. It's interesting in and of itself because clearly the, that she's going after him. The bloom is off the rose. 
Um, it's not, you, you know, it's not like there's been this massive shift against him, but something has changed. Unlike, you know, for example, um, like Fauci is still a hero that's carried over. That's ongoing. This is not this, that that is not the situation. Although the enemy of the the enemy of my enemy is no longer my friend playing out on the left is funny because I've now seen a couple of a couple friends send me links going, wow, I didn't realize he made that much money. The couple of stories about how highly paid Fauci is among, you know, because this yeah. he's just a dedicated, selfless public servant who well, makes almost half a million dollars. I'm just putting that out there. Like, to be fair, he has worked. <laughs> This he's worked a long time. Yeah. You get, yeah. You get a 3% yeah. in. No, I understand that. But, but He's 80 years old. Like right, but the idea that the media had built him up to be a kind of saint like figure who yeah. they probably acted as if he, you know, signed his checks over to charity, but it's fine. It's fine. You should earn that much. I mean, doc, many doctors with his skills earn a lot more in the private sector, but right. I see you're seeing that starting to break down for these liberal heroes now, which is yeah. interesting. You know, I hope Anthony Fauci has good dental health. I just want to say that I have problems with him, but I hope he has good dental health. And, you know, the new way to uh, achieve better dental health, as I've been telling you this week, is gum. It turns out chewing gum, uh, sugar-free gum for 20 minutes after meals uh, is an unsung hero when it comes to better oral health. Um, uh, Not all gum is created equal. And Quip, the good habits company, uh, that makes the great toothbrush that I've been talking to you about for years is now distributing a new gum that comes in uh, a kind of uh, a, a candy-like dispenser, one of those ones that when we were kids had, you know, the head of, uh, you know, of a cute animal on it and a little pellet came out. You get one of those with 10 pieces of gum in it. Uh, the gum is uh, crunchy, it's uh, three-layered, uh, it's minty, it has tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories, um, and is stamped by the classic Quip tongue. Uh, you get one of those with the gum, you chew it 20 minutes a day after meals, and uh, it is a great support for your... It does not substitute <clears throat> for the two minutes of brushing <clears throat> with the Quip toothbrush using the Quip toothpaste or the Quip floss, <clears throat> but if you pair it with that... You are doing great, <clears throat> and uh, you can uh, get that fresh brush head floss and toothpaste refill every three months from $5 for Quip. From Quip, shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the misery of in-store shopping. So spread good oral health habits this season. Join the over 5 million mouths already using Quip. Get chewing for less than $2 per gum pack. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, you can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash commentary, Quip, the good habits company. Um, So we are told today that a House minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, has uh, taken a trip down to uh, Palm Beach to see uh, Donald Trump uh, and uh, I guess this uh, puts this uh, brings full circle uh, the uh, three weeks since the uh, uh, insurrection and storming of the Capitol. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to uh, bend the knee to the man that he uh, has now been revealed to him, and everybody else remains the leader of the Republican Party. Um, somebody said last night, which I thought was pretty interesting, that Kevin McCarthy. Uh, faced with the stories about the QAnon uh, freshman congressman from Florida, Marjorie Taylor Greene, 
um, you know, abusing uh, the Parkland kid, David Hogg, on the street, uh, uh, liking uh, Facebook posts that said that Nancy Pelosi should be shot in the head and stuff like that. He said he's going to have a conversation with her about it. Um, but he spoke much more critically about Liz Cheney uh, for the, uh, the evident sin of voting uh, to impeach uh, Donald Trump. So he is apparently more concerned about Liz Cheney than he is about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, Can't they just have Liz Cheney have a cage match in the octagon with Marjorie Taylor Greene? Because I would put all my money on Liz Cheney in that fight, honestly. <laughs> so, so would I. Um, but uh, who else is uh, incredibly depressed by this? I mean, I, I don't know. I, 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 I do not understand uh, the game that I understand the idea that the Republican base and the Republican Party has made it clear that it is siding with Donald Trump despite or because of or whatever what happened on January 6th. I understand that. I also understand that Kevin McCarthy is a politician who wants to remain in control of the House Republican Caucus, and I understand that maybe his job is made easier by expressing some form of fealty toward Donald Trump. What I don't understand is uh, where is his brain, where is his spine, where is his heart, and where is his soul? That's what I don't understand by Kevin McCarthy. Well, it's also bad. It's, it's just as a strategy for leadership, it's bad, right? He's going to spend all of his, look, the media attention is going to remain on people like Marjorie Taylor Greene on this, this Madison Cawthorn who stupidly was like, my focus is not to legislate. It's to have a communication strategy. I mean, there are a lot of outliers in his coalition who, if he wants to keep them outliers, he needs to actually tamp down that fire. And we do know he was also, he's also been talking to Republicans saying, stop criticizing each other publicly, like the in, bringing all this out in the open, don't air our dirty laundry. But he's not being a very good leader strategically if he doesn't put these fires out now. Anyway, he's got a lot of nerve. He attacked Liz Cheney. He's right, so I'm I very know, concerned I about her. Like, go to hell, <laughs> right. two-faced, hypocritical creep. He's a, he's a poor leader. <laughs> Abe, I'm sorry. No, well, <clears throat> in thinking about the larger uh, GOP civil war, I think there's a, there's a very concerning problem, which is that um, if you're not on the Trump side of this, what is your positive um, agenda? What is, what is it that you are trying to get people to coalesce around? We could, we could tell you all the things that the, that the, that the Trumpian side is, is talking about, wants to implement, wants to see happen, wants to actually do. Um, Whereas the other side is really about a pulling back. Um, And that is, that is a very hard tactical challenge to overcome. And I think it's why yeah. you see people dropping out and yeah. and being railroaded and, and, and whatever. Noah, look, you know, I'm going to repeat the Nathan Wurzel doc, doctrine, which is if, 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 if Republicans are just not crazy, we can already see it's been a week. We can already see that the Democrats are handing are handing their opponents the rope with which to hang them in 2022. I've mentioned two or three instances of it this week. There are things that will maybe help them, right? Uh, a good administration of the vaccine, uh, a huge economic growth spurt as a result of the ending of the pandemic. All of that could put them in very good shape. The cultural behavior of the party is another story. And um, that is usually best done by a party that makes itself relatively anodyne in response. That's the Joe Biden 
against Donald Trump. Like you don't go with, you know, uh, the the most left wing candidate to run against Trump because you are you go with the one who is the least offensive. Uh, and he just stands there and lets Trump be Trump, and then Trump kind of get, loses the election for himself. The choice here with the with the Republicans is: Are they going to remain crazy? The Democrats will be crazy in twenty twenty two, and they're going to be crazy in twenty twenty two. And will this be a huge missed opportunity in a complicated election cycle? Yeah, probably. I mean, Republicans may just benefit entropically from democratic overreach or, you know, just a general sentiment that we saw in 2020, which was a desire to check the uh, administration and create divided government. And that, that might, that might benefit them. But Abe's point is, is the most profound here. And the most frustrating for me is that it's not that there isn't a positive agenda, what they're for. The problem is, is that there's a, a the populist streak on both parties is fueled by a sense of persecution. So the positive agenda is revenge. It's just getting back at the people who have screwed you and, and, and presenting themselves as being the most victimized, the most incensed, the, the most frustrated on your behalf. So the positive agenda isn't lifting all boats. It is meeting out pain. Once again, back to the Robin Hood thing. The chief agenda, uh, the chief item on the agenda for, for both political coalitions is to hurt other people. And there's nothing that I can support in that. Well, crushing morosity wins again. So uh, we will we will be back to you tomorrow with another episode of crushing morosity. Uh, we have to sell a candle that smells like crushing morosity. I'm telling you. Okay, we just... there we go. <laughs> okay, okay. Goop. <laughs> so for Noah, Christine, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the goop candle burning. <laughs> 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 <laughs>